Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it quite a bit bit differently today. I am in the home office, and I have a great show planned for you today. We're going to continue our multi-part series. I've I've pretty much worked it out. It's going to be a five-part series on medicinal plants that are available uh, to us out in the wilds and in the backyards of North. North America. The first show that we did on this, we talked about eight easy to identified, safe to use plants that were native to North America. Today we're going to take that same formula. I wanted things that were easy to identify, uh, common, easy to find, either because uh, they're so invasive and growing everywhere now, or that they're they're grown in backyards. Uh, I wanted them to be relatively safe, very few warnings about them, uh, and I also wanted them to be something that's not native to the United States. So I looked for eight imports, eight alien plants uh, that fit that criteria, and I came up with a list of them that we're going to be going over today. Before I do that, though, I should say that this is going to be episode 316 of the Survival Podcast. Today is a Thursday. It is... What is it? It's November the 12th, 2009. Again, I'm in the home office. That's the reason for the improved audio quality. Uh, and before we get on with today's show, I need to knock out the housekeeping. Number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. We have two sponsors of the day today. One is MERS-Radio.com. Again, MERS-Radio.com. MERS Radio is an unlicensed uh, radio technology. You don't need to have a license. You just buy it and start using it. It'll extend your communications beyond what's capable with the uh, family radios that are available in places like a cat and things like that. A little bit better quality. Nice little base stations can set up in the house. Uh, remote units that can go with people uh, when they're out. And also detectors that you can set up on different parts of your property that will detect motion and radio a warning to any radio monitoring the frequency that you have them set for. So a really cool, versatile tool. Again, MERS-radio.com. Next is Directive21.com. Directive21.com is a reseller of Berkey light water filters. Uh, one of the best filtering technologies on the, on the market to make water safe and pure and clean and good tasting to drink. I really recommend you check those guys out. Folks, trust me, of all the things that we need as we prepare for eventual emergencies, the ability to have safe, clean, pure water is one of the biggest. Uh, You can last a heck of a lot longer sitting around not eating than you can last sitting around not drinking uh, about three days without water in the best of circumstances and you're dead or at death's door. Uh, With that, let's move on. Next, make sure you're getting involved in our forum. Our forum is a great place you'll meet a lot of great uh, like-minded individuals. Um, Next, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade and all the new things that are going in there, folks. I just put about $100 in additional value into the Members Brigade last week. Uh, One of the things that's going to be in there is a uh, a compiled guide to medicinal plants. It's got eight in it now. Um, By the time, I'd say by the end of the day, if not tomorrow, uh, all the stuff we talk about today will be added to it with photos and identifying uh, uh, characteristics. Uh, Two new e-books from David Cohort. Um, ebooks from James Thomas Stevens, you name it. There's a ton of stuff there 
$50 a year or $5 a month to support the show. 20 cents an episode. Um, I also want to, I, I keep forgetting to do this, and I, this is big news, so I need to be talking about this, but I, I try to keep the housekeeping short. TSP now is a gear shop. We have t-shirts, we have badges, we have patches, really cool stuff. Go by the survivalpodcast.com. Look in the center column. You'll see a great big TSP gear shop button. Click on that. Check out what we have. Everything's pre-order right now, but we will be shipping in November, uh, and we'll be up to full speed in December. Uh, your order's coming in early. Help us get the gear shop off the ground faster. And that is being run by Sister Wolf and uh, the Wilderness from the forum. I've really kind of let them set that up as their own little thing. And uh, I'm just here to help promote it and help promote the show with it. And with that, let's move on to the show. Um, again, I want to reiterate some things from the last show. Number one. When we talk about medicinal plants, and I say, well, this plant is, is used for uh, reducing fevers or calming a stomach or, or what have you, or it has vitamin C or vitamin A or whatever in it, you don't want to be thinking with replacement mentality. In other words, I have a headache, and willow bark works for a headache, so I'll take willow bark instead of an aspirin. If you have aspirin available, actually aspirin's probably going to be a lot better for that headache. Uh, aspirin's one of the safest, gentlest medications out there. You also may be in a situation where if you're dealing with mild depression, we're going to talk about St. John's Wort today, and while you can use the whole herb, it might be better to use a commercially prepared component of St. John's Wort. But what I think is important is that we begin to recapture the knowledge that we used to have about all of these plants, what they are, so we don't just walk by them every day. We don't even realize, hey, there's a medicinal plant right there on the ground. Most of those weeds in your backyard have medicinal properties. I bet you if you listen to the first show in this series when I talked about dandelion, and you heard how many things dandelion is not just effective for traditionally, but proven effective for, you're probably shocked. So additionally, like I'm going to read to you a list today of the nutritional components of one of these plants. It's going to sound like I'm reading a bottle of Centrum. And it's probably a heck of a lot more effective if used regularly as a food than Centrum to make sure you're getting a full uh, profile of vitamins and minerals. But the way to see any type of medicinal plant use is to see it holistically, and that is to see it as a whole. What I mean by that is, it's, it's not again just a one-off replacement. Um, I have an insect bite instead of using a commercially prepared ointment. I poulticed up some marigold flower, flowers and put that on there, or chamomile and put that on there. It'll have a great effect. It's good to know. But that's so one-dimensional. It's more important to understand the, co- the components of these things. When you know something's high in vitamin C, if you get into a survival situation, then you know that that plant is good for preventing scurvy. If you know that it's, that it's high in minerals, you know that even if it doesn't have a high caloric value, it can help you get through a survival situation. If you know something is good for depression, like St. John's wort, and you can find it out in the wild, then maybe you can use it to help ward off the short-term depression that just comes to be with being lost or being in a bad situation because we've had a major uh, catastrophe of some sort that you're trying to get through. So all of these things have value, but try to see their value collectively as a whole and how they interplay with each other and how certain things can, can be combined. And again, test them on yourselves, but do so very carefully. I am not responsible if you eat something poisonous because you did not take extra steps to identify it. Do not try to identify something solely based on what I tell you. 
You need a local expert. You need to consult third-party literature. Even with using my plant guide, please use more materials. I do the best job that I can, but people can and do make mistakes. There are things out there that will kill you. So be very careful with your identification. Use very small parts of plants before you use larger parts of plants to gauge their effectiveness. That's responsible use of herbals as a medicinal. Some of these things are culinary in nature. You can eat a bowl full of them. But sometimes a plant that you can eat a bowl full of changes a little bit in its effects if you go from eating a bowl full of it to making an extract of it where it's a concentrated extract. In other words, you can eat five, six cloves of garlic. It's not going to bother you. Crack up, open some garlic, and put a bunch of pure garlic oil on a single spot on your skin, and if you have a sensitivity to it, it can cause a very bad rash. All right, so disclaimer done. Let's start talking about these plants. And again, I've got eight of them, easy to identify, you know, relatively safe, some of them usable as food. Um, all of them are considered to be alien to the United States or imports to the United States. And we're going to do something fun today. I'm not always going to tell you the name of the plant before I tell you what it does. I'm going to start out with this one. I'm not going to tell you the name of the plant until I tell you the things that it does. And see if you're surprised when you find out how common this plant is, how available it is in the springtime at all the stores that sell herbs to put in your backyard, how easy it is to grow, uh, the fact that it grows wild, it actually runs away. But listen to this. The leaves of this plant are opposite. That means they're on each side of each other. They're oval-shaped. They have a round-toothed appearance. When you crush them, I won't tell you how they smell because that will give it away. The flowers are white and inconspicuous. The leaf has been used as a poultice, which means you know crumbled up, crushed up, uh, maybe added a little bit of moisture, for sores and insect bites. It is a traditional folk remedy for fever, for painful menstruation, for headaches, for cold and insomnia. Hot water extracts are proven to be antiviral, which means they counteract virus activity. Uh, and they have a positive effect against Newcastle's disease. They have a positive effect against herpes viruses and a positive effect against the mumps virus. So it can be used to treat all of those ailments. More, um, strong extracts in the range of 200 to 1, so commercially uh, prepared extracts of this plant, are sold in Europe to treat cold sores, which again is a type of herpes. So there's the folk use being proven correct in modern uh, methodology. Uh, it's used as an extract in Germany for nervous conditions and sleeplessness. So people that are nervous, just a little bit on edge, maybe not crazy, you know, they don't need Prozac or something, just a little bit nervous. They need to be calmed down, or they're having a little bit of trouble sleeping. They use extracts of this stuff to help them sleep, uh, along with people that have digestive tract spasms. So just like that tiny little bit beginning of, uh, uh, you know, where the, the, you're starting to have, uh, what is the acid reflux type of response. Uh, not heavy into it where you need, you know, severe responses uh, in modern medicine techniques, but just at the beginning and, and to control the onset of it and prevent it from ever actually becoming a problem. Um, it's also been uh, proven to slow the breakdown of acetylene, which is a messenger compound deficient in brain cell cultures of Alzheimer's disease. So this plant actually shows promise for the treatment of Alzheimer's by slowing the breakdown of a component in the brain. Um, there are eight antiviral compounds, uh, and most of them are specific to herpes, but eight, eight antiviral compounds in this plant. Eight sedative compounds, eight things that calm you down, make you take a nap. Twelve anti-inflammatory compounds. In addition, it has antibacterial, uh, antispasmatic, and antioxidant activity. So it's an antioxidant, so it helps preserve and protect cells. 
amazing that one plant does that. You know what it is? When you crush those leaves, it smells like lemons. So do you know what it is now? It's lemon balm. It's a member of the mint family. You plant it, you almost can't control it. It goes crazy. It does all that for us. One plant. It is uh, originally native to Europe. So it was brought over, and it has grown in many gardens, many herb gardens. It's cultivated. It also has gone wild because it does so well in climates similar to Europe, which much, much of the United States is. So that's what lemon balm can do both as a traditional uh, product and with high extract varieties. Uh, again, it seems like the Europeans are always ahead of us on this and always more likely to turn to these alternatives than we are. I think we can learn from that. And the beauty of this plant is it's easy to identify and completely safe. Uh, once you know what lemon balm looks like and smells like, you'll never misidentify it with anything. If you want to throw two handfuls of it into a salad and you like the lemon contribution that it makes to a salad, you can eat all of it you want. It's not going to hurt you. But yet it has all of these advantageous components. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Let's go to the next one. I'll tell you what this one is up front. And it doesn't have the huge laundry list, but you'll be surprised at what it can do for you. And you probably have it growing in your backyard. And much can be say, it said the same about its relative red clover. So I'm talking about white clover. Let's talk about what white clover is doing here in the United States anyway. Why do we have it? I mean, everybody looks at it now when it's in a lawn and they consider, oh, look at that clover, it's a weed, and they want to kill it. Well, uh, before about 1900... Uh, most lawns in America were primarily made up of a mixture of grass and clover. That's what people wanted. Uh, they would seed with grass seed and clover seed mixed because the grass uh, got nitrogen directly from the clover and at a time when commercial fertilizer was available, none was needed. It also pr proved to be a very soft place for kids to play and roll around in. It had beautiful little white flowers that would come up, and you could cut your lawn once every two weeks instead of once every one week. Or in fact, you could cut it every three weeks in a lot of places if there wasn't heavy rain because clover doesn't grow straight up the way grass does. If you uh, were keeping bees, which many people were doing back then because honey was considered so valuable because you couldn't just run down to the store and pick up a cup of sugar anytime you wanted to, uh, white clover flour made some of the best honey and still makes some of the best honey available today. If you had rabbits or livestock, you could have them eat it because it was very nutritional for your livestock. So that's why it was here. That's We brought it here intentionally. We planted it intentionally, and today we've decided we don't like it anymore. I think it's crazy. I have white clover all through my backyard. I put down about 10 pounds of seed a year ago, and uh, it's beginning to spread itself throughout the yard. And I hope it takes the whole thing over. But what can it do for us medicinally? Let's talk about, first, how do we identify it? Clover is so easy to identify, uh, but the leaves of white clover, of course, are three-part, or the mythical four-leaf clover, if you can ever find one. They usually have a little V-mark on them, or often have a V-mark on them. The flowers are stalked, white, and many times they turn to like a pinkish hue, uh, and they have little round heads on the flowers, if you let them grow high enough for those flowers to be produced. Uh, so what we can do with them? As soon as it was here, almost as soon as we started growing this stuff, Native Americans snapped to this stuff really quick, and they started using the leaf tea for colds, coughs, fevers, and leucorrhea. Now, what's leucorrhea? Uh, not something we like to think about often, but it's a uh, it's an unexpected, unexplained vaginal discharge that occurs during pregnancy. It's been used for that, and it's been used effectively for that. Um, the flowers in Europe are traditionally used as a flower tea uh, for rheumatism and gout. And I'll tell you that white clover flower tea is also one of those things that's actually very uh, 
it's enjoyable to drink, especially with a little bit of honey for sweetening. It's a, another one of these good relaxation teas. You're having a little bit of trouble getting to sleep. You take something like a little bit of mint, a little bit of white clover flour, a little bit of chamomile. You brew that as a tea, and you add a little bit of honey to it. And it's a very sedating product. Uh, you could use the, the the clover flour alone, but you'll get a better product and a better effect by combining those three. And again, mint, clover, chamomile, completely safe, no serious side effects or dangers to worry about, very low probability of misidentification of any of those as well. And, and much like red clover, white clover contains esogenic isoflavin, the esogenic isoflavin genistein or genistine. I'm not sure how you say that, but what is that? Uh, it has a large number of properties, including things like uh, the ability to uh, act as a cancer preventative and also to act as a heavy antioxidant. I think you'll find that anything that's a heavy antioxidant preventing cell damage is cell damage, not cell damage, cell damage is also very good at preventing cancers. So that white clover weed in your backyard that you're trying to eradicate, used occasionally as a tea, will have antioxidant effects on your body, help to prevent cancer, help you get to sleep at night, and uh, even has a propensity for the reduction of the effects of coughs and fevers and symptoms like that. Pretty amazing. It's just a weed. It's not just a weed. It's, it's, it's something that's been produced by nature that has a specific way that mankind can use it to make our lives better. If we just open our eyes and realize that actually white clover under your feet feels a hell of a lot better than sharp Bermuda grass. And it can do a hell of a lot more for you too. Notice that Bermuda grass isn't going to show up in this series. Let's move on to the next plant that I have to talk to you about, to, to talk with you about today. Um, this is one that's really considered a problem where I live in Texas. It is very invasive. It is almost impossible to eradicate once it shows up. It grows along roadsides. It grows in farmers' fields. It was originally brought in as a commercial product for the production of its seed, and it's called milk thistle. It's a relative to the artichoke, and if you want to identify it, it looks a lot like um, artichoke in the way that its leaves look. The leaves are mottled or streaked. They have white veins. They're sharply spined. Uh, it'll grow up to about six feet tall, and where it differs from artichoke, instead of that big artichoke head uh, that you're familiar with from the grocery store or the farmer's market, it grows these flowers with purple tufts, and they, they usually show up between about June and September, the, the flower puffs. And, one, and this is another plant. Once you see, you just go and, and, and Google milk thistle and look at a picture of a milk thistle flower. You, you'll never misidentify it. it is, it's pretty easy to identify. And... Uh, so how is it traditionally used? Well, traditionally, a tea made from the whole plant, the leaves, the flowers, the stalks, was used to improve appetite, provide relief from indigestion, improve liver function. It's also been used for cirrhosis, jaundice, hepatitis, and liver poisonings from chemical, uh, chemical use, uh, drug use, and alcohol abuse. So it has a very detoxifying effect. The leaves uh, are eaten when young with spines removed as a pot herb. And if you want to eat milk thistle, it's actually a pretty decent little pot herb. But the way to make it really good is to get some cardboard or something that's going to last and go out and find the plants when they're very, very young and do what's called blanch them, which is to wrap around and block the light from them for about a week or two and then go back and harvest those blanched leaves. Uh, they'll be a lot more tender. And they actually make a pretty decent pot herb. And you get all of the medicinal effects while you're just getting a free wild edible. Um, moreover, though, there is something called silymarin, and that's a seed extract. And experimental use with this seed extract has shown a dramatic improvement 
uh, of liver regeneration after suffering the effects of something like hepatitis, cirrhosis, or mushroom poisoning. You get poisoned by mushrooms, it's very damaging to the liver. Well, the extract of the seeds of milk thistle have been proven to help the liver regrow itself after it's been damaged by, again, hepatitis or, or, or some type of poisoning, including mushroom poisoning. Oral preparations of the seed extracts are manufactured in Europe and now widely available in the United States. So we're not making any of this stuff in the U.S., I guess, but you can get it from uh, European importers. Uh, so that's an extract. And, and so this is, a, this is a place where you see, again, modern science and traditional folk use with an overlap. And you see that their traditional use included things like cirrhosis, jaundice, and hepatitis, liver poisoning. And it was effective. And that by extracting it and getting a purer form, it's more effective with modern extracts. But either one will work. That's not always the case. There are some plants where there's almost no effect unless you extract. And there are some plants like milk thistle where you get a lesser effect. And a lesser effect is not always bad. If you're looking for a basic improvement in liver functionality and health, then you don't need a strong extract. The whole herb and the tea is just fine. The other thing to think about is this. If you have something like milk thistle, listen to what I'm saying. Health, when we think about modern herbology, we think about traditional herbology, we think about modern medicine, what gets missed by most people that the traditional herbalist understands. Health is not about making someone who's sick well only. It's also about making people who are well stay that way. So a lot of these things are not so much used in a critical acute situation. If you have jaundice, don't start eating milk thistle and think it's going to fix it. If you have jaundice, you need to be in an emergency room. But if you are engaging in things that are maybe tough on the liver, maybe you drink a little more than you should and you're not willing to quit, right? a little bit of something like this can help support liver function. And it can either be done directly with a whole herb, it can be a combination of herbs that you wall craft yourself, or understanding these wild herbs will help you pick a supplement from a provider because there are, a, there are a lot of advantages to going to a provider. Western Botanicals is our sponsor, for instance, and buying a pre-mixed uh, substance that's designed for a specific need. But if you understand the wild crafting portion of it, and you look at the list of things that are in there, then you can make an intelligent decision. Is this thing really supporting liver health? Is it because so just because it says on a bottle somewhere in a store, you know, supports liver health, doesn't mean that it does, or doesn't mean that it does in a way that's beneficial to you and your lifestyle. So understanding these things will make you a smarter consumer when you go beyond using the plant in the wild. So I want you to see the whole thing synergistically here. The next one's simple to identify. Now there's a plant that looks a lot like this plant. It also looks a lot like wild onion. And the next plant is wild garlic or garlic as a whole in general. There's a plant, I don't remember what it's called, but it's deadly poisonous. But the leaves or the stalks that come up out of the ground are not hollow tubes. They're more of a, a, a true leaf. So don't eat that. I don't know how you could confuse wild garlic with anything though. Because when you pull, I mean, it may look the same above the ground a little bit, but when you pull it out of the ground and you're smelling garlic, you know what garlic smells like. And I, it's, it's the same with onion as far as I'm concerned. We're talking about garlic here today, though. Now, most people, I think, are actually shocked to find out that garlic originally comes from Europe and Asia. It is not native to North America. Um, there's a lot of garlic out there now that's out there in the wild, that's escaped from cultivation. And when you find wild garlic, I think you found something special. I've never found wild garlic growing in these huge, big balls the way they do in my garden in my backyard. 
I've always found wild garlic in smaller little tiny balls, maybe one or two cloves at most. I find it mostly in the winter. Uh, in January, February is where I'll find it a lot around here in uh, Texas and all the way up in Arkansas I'll find it. In fact, at times uh, when all the grass is dead and not much else can handle the cold in that deep part of the winter, you'll drive along the roadsides here in Texas and you'll see miles, literally miles of stalks of wild garlic sticking up out of the ground. When you pull it up out of the ground, it has an amazing smell, an amazing taste. It's an excellent culinary addition. I've I've started to take and, and gather this stuff and start to cultivate it, and I'm trying to find a balance. I'm not trying to bring it back to completely domesticated status, but maybe just a little bit bigger and have something special like that growing in my own backyard. When we look at it as a medicinal, there's a lot of herbalists, if you said, I'll take away everything from you, you can only have one plant to treat everything, what would it be? And they'll tell you garlic. Why? Let's take a look at what garlic will do. Uh, mostly you use just the peeled cloves. Nobody really uses the leaves for much. Uh, they can be used, I guess, chopped up in, in a, as a, something for a salad or a dip or what have you. But mostly use the cloves. Well, they're made into a tea, a syrup, or a tincture for the following. Colds, fevers, coughs, earaches, bronchitis, shortness of breath, sinus congestion, headaches, stomach aches, high blood pressure, arterial sclerosis, diarrhea, dysentery, gout, and rheumatism. Wow. <laughs> the juice is also applied externally to ringworm and acne, and you need to be aware that for some people the, the, the juice, the pure extract, can be somewhat irritating to the skin. So it's something that should always be tried a little tiny spot, tested first, then maybe a little bit larger of an area. And if there's no problem with any kind of dermatitis, you can go ahead and use it on the whole thing. But you need to test skin sensitivity of yourself for an individual utilizing this first. Uh, more, the medicinal use of garlic is documented back as far as 7,000 years ago. Uh, experimental evidence shows the ability to low blood pressure uh, and serum cholesterol. It's also been clinically shown to have antibacterial, antifungal, and diuretic effects. Um, there's also clinical evidence of garlic being effective against gastrointestinal disorders, hypertension, and heart ailments. It's good for high blood pressure. It's good for high cholesterol. There's parts of Europe where people consume massive amounts of garlic, and they also consume massive amounts of pasta and cheese and greasy meat. And yet they have way less high blood pressure, um, coronary heart disease, and all the modern illnesses that Americans are so afflicted with. And it's the use of garlic. And here's an example of ass clownery from the medical profession that just ticks me off. I remember one day several years ago, I was watching one of these morning ass clown programs, as I call them now, um, where, you know, like Good Morning America, Today Show, whatever the hell it was. And uh, they had this ass clown doctor on that was there, and he was like basically like a shill for Lipitor, right, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. But he was talking about how the new research out about garlic proved that once you cooked garlic, you didn't get many of these effects anymore. And that only by using raw garlic or slightly warmed garlic would you be able to realize these health effects from garlic. And he said, this shows that the results are in. All this talk about garlic is nonsense. And people eating garlic and thinking it's going to improve their health is nonsense. And if you have a condition like high blood pressure, you need to rely on a proven pharmaceutical. If I could have reached through the TV by some type of magic power and grabbed him by the throat, I would have yanked him into my living room, beat his ass, and walked into the TV screen and asked people, hey, do you really have a problem with taking the food that you're cooking, you're using garlic with, and at the end throwing a little bit of raw garlic in at the end? You know? It's that simple. So you've made spaghetti sauce and you like garlic? Chop up a little fresh garlic at the end and mix it in at the end instead of cooking it all the way through. You can still use the flavoring enhancement of cooking it through. 
But there's nothing wrong with eating raw garlic. It's not bad. It doesn't stink the way that people say that it does. It's nonsense. Right? It's absolute nonsense. Now, does that mean that after you eat, you shouldn't brush your teeth if you have garlic breath? No. But if you're going to tell me you'll eat garlic bread, garlic infused this, use garlic when you fry that, and just adding a little bit of fresh garlic at the end is going to make it all of a sudden different in the way that you smell to other people, you, you, I just, I'm not going to buy it. And what we're talking about here is avoiding a substance like Libertor that destroys your liver over time, absolutely shuts it down and destroys it long term. One of the most damaging pharmaceuticals known to man versus garlic. And my thought is always, if you need the drug or you're going to have severe health problems, use the drug. But if you're not into a severe state yet, try the simple, natural, gentle alternative of a slight dietary adjustment and something like garlic first. But garlic is an amazing plant with a tremendous amount of use. All right, here we go. I'm going to give you another one here. And this is going to be one where I'm going to give you the entire rundown on the plant, what it does, what it looks like, uh, what advantages it has, and then I'm going to turn around and tell you what the name of the plant is. All right, so how do we identify this plant? It's an annual weed. Uh, it's considered native by some to the United States, and others consider it aliens. And there's probably a little bit of truth that there's some different species and subspecies that are both native and introduced. Okay, And there's probably been some interspecies uh, breeding uh, at, at some point, crossover hybridization that's now gone wild itself. Uh, it grows one to three feet tall. The stems are mealy and red streaked. Leaves are somewhat diamond shaped and coarsely toothed. Uh, the leaves are also mealy on the underside and, and white. Flowers are greenish. You don't really notice them unless you look for them. They form clusters in June through October uh, in most of the United States. And this is a, this is a plant that's not real hard to find. It's pretty much everywhere at this point. Uh, Native Americans ate the leaves to treat stomach uh, stomach aches and prevent scurvy. So we know it's high in vitamin C since it prevents scurvy. A cold tea is used for diarrhea and a leaf poultice is used for burns. Uh, the leaves are also edible and often consumed. The seeds are not traditionally considered medicinal, but most likely they would con contain a lot of the same compounds that the leaves do. They can be ground into a flour for making breads and combined with other flour types for best results because they're a very dark seed. They'd make a very dark bread on their own. More, while not traditionally considered medicinal by many, what is often overlooked is the, the massive nutritional value which reads almost like the label of a multivitamin bottle and includes significant quantities of the following things. Here we go. Niacin, folate, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin K, thiamine, riboflavin, vitamin B6, calcium, potassium, copper, and manganese, along with being a very good source of dietary fiber and protein. So we have something with a huge nutritional profile that provides a lot of protein, especially if we use the seeds in a situation where we may not be able to gather protein. High in dietary fiber, which is always beneficial when you're in a survival or a tough situation uh, to keep systems functioning regularly. Uh, high fiber is also good for cancer, cancer prevention. Right? And that's all not considered part of the medicinal use of this plant. That's just nutritional. What is it? Lamb's quarters. Lamb's quarters. And some of you guys that are out there using a lot of wild edibles probably nailed that one right in the beginning when I described the white mealy look to it. This is another plant 
Lamb's quarters, kind of hard to look at a picture, but once you see it and you know it and you verify what Lamb's quarters are, you'll always know it. Now, one danger here. Some people call Lamb's quarters pigweed, and that's a common name, and, and there is another variety of true pigweed that is toxic and will kill you, but it doesn't really look like Lamb's quarters. Uh, the other thing is I had people suggest that I give you the Latin names of these plants. I'm going to put them in the guide, in the final version of the guide. I'll put the Latinaic names. I'm not going to use them on the air because I don't speak Latin very well, and I'll probably mispronounce them, and it won't do you any good. Suffice to say, again, a warning, whenever you're identifying these plants, you have to get a positive identification. If you can find a local expert, a local botanist, or a local herbalist, or a local wildcrafter, you could use that person to help identify these things. That would be the most beneficial way to do this. Uh, but again, I want you to think about that laundry list. I mean, come on. You, If you heard, hey, I'm going to give you something with niacin, folate, iron, magne- magnesium, phosphorus, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin K, thiamine, riboflavin, B6, calcium, potassium, copper, uh, manganese. You think you're eating a bottle of Centrum. And this plant grows everywhere. Check out um, uh, Bushcraft on Fire's YouTube channel with David Wendell. Uh, he does a lot with lamb's quarters. Go to his channel and check out his videos about lamb's quarters using the seeds. Uh, I, there's a video where his wife, Tam, uses uh, some, some regular flour and uh, lamb's quarter seeds to make bannock, which is kind of a form of fire-roasted bread. And uh, I, I just think this is a tremendous plant with a tremendous amount going for it, both as a medicinal value and as a traditional value. Now let's shift gears here and let's talk about a plant where you can sort of use it, but you're really better off using commercial products for it. Um, where you almost wonder how the traditional use uh, figured out that it was actually beneficial because the whole plant itself is, is so weak that it doesn't really seem to provide much effect at all. The plant is the giant tree known as ginkgo. Uh, ginkgo is originally from China, very easy to identify. It's been on the planet for more than 200 million years. Botanists will actually refer to ginkgo sometimes as a living fossil. That's how long it's been with us. The leaves are alternate and they're fan-shaped, two big lobes. They're broader than long. Uh, they're usually about one to three and a half inches wide. Males and females are on different trees. One of the few trees, rest of the case, you have a male tree and a female tree. And that means if you want a ginkgo tree and you don't want the fruit, which I'll talk about in a second around, because it's not really useful for much other than the seeds as a medicinal, um, and it stinks, you can just get male ginkgo tree. If you get males, you won't have the fruit. Um, in fact, if you get females and there's no males in the area, you won't have a fruit, but I wouldn't take that risk. I'd get a known male species if you... Uh, if you wanted to uh, make sure you didn't have this fruit. Because what is the fruit? It's oval, it's fleshy, and foul-smelling. In other words, it stinks. It has hard-coated, and there's an oval seed inside it. So the traditional use for ginkgo is the seeds. Uh, the toxic, stinky flesh is removed, and then the seeds are cooked, and, a com- and they're used as a component of traditional Chinese medicine for lung ailments. So it's mainly a you know respiratory system aid is what this is used for traditionally. The leaves, well, extracts provide a multitude of benefits that have made uh, ginkgo extract one of the best-selling herbal extracts in the world. Uh, They include things like um, increased circulation, improving oxygen metabolism in the extremities and in the brain, and they're proven to be a strong antioxidant. It also improves the short-term memory response, attention span, and mood in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And that's probably all about circulation. 
Because if you're pushing more blood through the brain, you're keeping the components of the brain that are being affected by Alzheimer's active and able to defend themselves longer. If it improves circulation, it would also then be useful for any type of extremity problem where you're having, um, let's say, uh, a diabetic having problems with their extremities. It should have some use for that as well. I don't know that that's the case, but it would make logical sense. Or any time you have a wound of the extremities, having a higher blood circulation rate will aid the speed of healing. So this is where you can combine things. So you have a wound, maybe you use something like a chicory or a marigold poultice on it to help extract any type of infection and promote healing, and use ginkgo extract taken internally to increase blood flow, which should speed healing response. That's theoretical, folks. I, I don't know if anybody actually does that, but that's what I'm talking about, thinking independently for yourself. And if it's small cut, again, we talked about this last week, so you got <clears throat> a couple cuts from s- some sticker plants. Uh, when you're out just playing around in the bush. They're pretty similar. Do that with one, you know, the poultice, and leave the other one unpulsed to see how they heal differently. Remember what it was like, and the next time you have a similar scratch, do it with ginkgo and see, does it, does it, do, you, do you feel like it speeds your healing? You know your body better than anybody else, no matter what any bullshit doctor or scientist tells you. You know when you're, you're having a response. And if they tell you it's psychosomatic, I don't care. I don't care if it really is. I don't care if you believe something helped you, and because of that belief, it healed faster. Then it still worked. Placebo response should be studied, not ridiculed by science. Because that's tapping into the body's innate ability to heal itself. And I'll get a little bit deeper with placebo response, probably in the last episode I do in this series. That's probably deep enough for today. But this is one of the plants where if you want the real effects of ginkgo leaf, you've got to go with an extract. The leaves are just too weak. The, the extracts are a huge ratio, and very specific components are extracted from the ginkgo plant. Nothing synthesized in, in natural ginkgo extract, um, but it's what is extracted and at what ratios. So that's something, uh, again, I would go ahead and rely on what comes in a bottle for ginkgo. Let's talk about another simple one to identify. See it all over the country. Uh, houses in my neighborhoods have this tree. We had about 10 of them growing on our property in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's called Weeping Willow, another uh, Chinese import. And most of what I'm going to tell you about Weeping Willow is true of all willow plants, most. Um, so why am I doing Weeping Willow today? Because I'm doing imports. I'm doing things that came from elsewhere. I'm doing things that are easy to identify. Uh, again, a Weeping Willow is a tree that you look at and go, that's a Weeping Willow. Most 8-year-old kids that have ever seen one can identify a Weeping Willow plant. So it fits well with today's uh, uh, show. Not much surprise if you know anything at all about uh, you know plant, med- plant medicinals. Um, it's been used for more than 2,000 years in China to treat arthritis, jaundice, and fevers. Uh, it's used in Europe as a tonic uh, for antiseptic fever reduction and its astringent qualities. And again, I'm talking about the bark there for those uses. So the bark is an astringent and used in a tea or an extract for fever, again, uh, pains, aches, uh, anything like that. The leaves are used in a tea in China for reducing fevers as well. Uh, that help regulate urination and purify the blood, as the Chinese call it. Uh, it can be poulticed, the, either the bark or the leaves, on insect bites and stings and has a relieving effect. And I found the leaves poulticed up and mashed up and put onto a bite to have a very similar effect to what happens if you mash up and wet up a little bit of an aspirin tablet and put it on there. There's a reason for that. Like most willows, weeping willow uh, contains salicin. Um, and that is the main component in commercial aspirin. 
So when people say, well, you can boil up willow bark or, or willow leaves or both and use it as an absence, aspirin substitute, they're absolutely right. My point is only that if you have aspirin, you probably would be better off using the aspirin because it's safe, effective, proven, and more specific to the problem. But knowing that you can go back to using willow if you need to is highly, highly advantageous. And I also know that if I'm walking through the bush and I get bit by something that's itching like crazy and there's some willow leaves around, I can mash those up and get immediate relief and I may not be carrying a bottle of bare aspirin in my pocket. Uh, or if I'm out working in the garden, I have a willow tree on the property. And again, this is another one that I find that works really well mixed with marigold flowers. Because marigold has a very uh, extracting or drawing effect. So I have the drawing effect of marigold, and I have the, the uh, sensitivity and inflammation reduction uh, of both marigold and willow. So there's another one, folks. How many willow trees have you seen in your life? All right, so I think we're up to the last one today. And uh, it is what is known as common St. John's wort. This is one that you can use whole herb. Um, you can grow it in your backyard. You can buy it in a bottle in a store, and it's one of the wonder plants as far as I'm concerned. It's really easy to identify. I, I think it's a really pretty plant. It's a flowered herb, again, originally from Europe. It grows one to three feet tall, uh, and I think it looks good in kind of a wild flower area uh, or an area with a lot of tall cutting flowers, maybe with chamomile and, and other, uh, maybe California poppy, other plants that grow tall. Um, the flowers are yellow, and they have a kind of a bushy center that's formed by the stamens. They have five petals to each flower, and they have black dots on their margins. The flowers are visible June through September, so you get a good summer bloom if you use them as an ornamental in your yard. And this is another plant. Once you see it, and once you identify it, once you know it, and you say, that's what it looks like, you'll never look at anything and go, I think that's St. John's. You'll know. Very, very easy to identify once it's done the first time. So how is it used? The fresh flowers are used in tea, tincture, or olive oil, and they were once very popular for the treatment of external ulcers and wounds, especially wounds that had neural damage. So a deep wound that maybe had some nerve damage, uh, this was used on. It was also used on sores, cuts, and bruises. The leaf tea, get this, okay, the leaf tea is considered a folk remedy for bladder ailments, diarrhea, worms, and then I left one out, because it's the one that's used everywhere for now, depression. Now, this is what I want to talk about, again, how folk uses, where people go, ah, oh, it's folk medicine, whatever. Right? Well, it was used for depression. Well, the number one use of commercially prepared St. John's wort today is for the treatment of mild to moderate depression. It's used more in Europe than the antidepressant drugs that we hand out, like M&Ms here in the United States, things like, uh, you know, Paxil and Prozac and all these other, you know, the one where they, they play, there's a commercial out for an antidepressant now. It makes me want to kill the people that created it. It really does. It's like they play the sad music. They're like, where does depression hurt? Everywhere. How does depression make you feel? Where do you want to go? Nowhere. You know, and they just, it, it basically, if you're depressed and you watch this commercial, you just want to go get a gun and put it to your head. And, and I can't remember what that, uh, what that particular pharmaceutical is, but I just shouldn't give them any branding anyway off of my show. But those types of medications, it's a first response here in the United States. First response to, to mild depression in Europe? Here, take some St. John's wort, take it X number of times a day, see how you do. I think we'd be a lot better off if we would do that here in the United States. And that can be done, again, 
with the whole herb or it can be done with commercially prepared product. If you're dealing with moderate depression and you have an open-minded doctor that wants to work with you on it, instead of putting you on it on a heavy antidepressants, you'll probably be much better off with a commercially prepared product of known quantity. But knowing the herb itself, growing it in your backyard, having it around, I think has a tremendous opportunity to be there if it's ever necessary because we lose the ability to run down to the store and buy some and to experiment with it because it's a safe drug, or not a drug, it's a safe plant to experiment with. It's very safe, uh, especially used in moderate quantities. It's also pretty. And I believe that there's other ways to use these herbs. And in the final show, I'm not going to talk about any of the individual herbs in this series. I'm going to talk about uh, uses that I think people don't understand. I'm going to kind of wrap it up and follow again. And I'll talk about St. John's wort used in a different way to enhance mood than we usually think about it when I get to that show. But that's going to be it for today. So there you go. Um, again, that was a a tremendous number of benefits that we came up with. And the plants that we talked about are pretty common and easy to find. Again, the plants we talked about today, uh, lemon balm, white clover, milk thistle, wild garlic, lamb's quarters, ginkgo, and weeping willow, and St. John's wort. And these plants are in your backyard, folks. I guarantee you, you can find at least half of them within 10 miles of your home, unless you live somewhere in an extreme environment, the middle of the desert, uh, the northern tundras of uh, Alaska or something like that. In the majority of the United States, at least half of those are not going to be that difficult to locate. Many of them you can go down to the garden center in the springtime and buy, or go buy some seeds and plant them in your backyard. So, again, don't think just one-off replacement, willow bark for aspirin. That's a single component of the whole. How can these things be combined? And moreover, begin to educate yourself where these plants are, what they look like, and what they do. It will give you a greater understanding of your surroundings. If you have a greater understanding of your surroundings, when you're put into a situation you don't want to be in, you're more able to cope with, use, and adapt to your surroundings. So it's not just the holistic effect of herbal medicine, ditch medicine, whatever you want to call it, alternative therapy. It's a holistic approach to modern preparedness and modern survivalism and self-sufficiency. An understanding of the plant life around you and how it affects your body in positive and negative ways. What's safe and what's not. What's useful and what's not. What uses there are that are specific to them. And what things are just kind of legend that's never proven true. Knowing these things will make you more adaptable to your modern world. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off today. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.